0: The Ability One program has long connected federal contracting requirements to people with disabilities. Nonprofit contractors employing those folks have not been bound to pay minimum wages, though. Many employees have, in fact, consistently received sub minimum wages for helping produce everything from office furniture to airplane engine parts. Now, Ability One has proposed a rule to end sub minimum wages for Ability One suppliers who want to keep their federal contracts. Here, with one reaction the President and CEO of Melwood, Larissa Kautz. Ms. Kautz, good to have you on.
1: Thanks, Tom. Really great to be on.
0: And just tell us, I think everyone knows from radio advertising on our station and on our sister station, WTOP, that Melwood is looking for vehicles. But tell us more about the company and what it is you produce and sell to the government.
1: Absolutely. Yes, our marketing and communications team are quite good at at branding the fact that we do take car donations. So Melwood is a nonprofit corporation. We were founded in 1963, basically on a plot of unimproved land that was donated by the federal government across from Andrews Air Force Base in Upper Marlboro, Maryland. And it was donated to a group of parents who were determined to teach skills to their young children with disabilities, young adults with disabilities who were considered untrainable and unemployable at that time. And I can tell you in the past 60 years, we've gotten a lot better. We've made progress. But it is an opinion that does still pervade our communities, that people with disabilities are less than, and they don't quite have the abilities to be able to do jobs.
0: Well, how many people do you employ and what do they produce?
1: We have 1,600 employees across the DMV, the Washington, D.C. area, and also Virginia and Maryland, and we do a slew of different services for the federal government at 60-plus different federal contract sites. We do facility maintenance, which includes HVAC, electrical. We do cleaning. We do snow removal, recycling, administrative, tech support. So quite a few services, and nearly 1,000 of those individuals that we employ have significant disabilities.
0: Got it. And what is the pay situation for Melwood? Do you pay, in fact, minimum wage or what's your profile like there?
1: So I'll tell you that 10 years ago, we were taking advantage of the subminimum wage rules, which allow you to apply for a certificate, which in essence gives you the right to do productivity trials and make your employees with disabilities do time trials several times a year and then comparing their skills to quote typical workers. And of course, you and I know that there's no such thing as a typical worker. (laughs) And I wouldn't want someone timing me to see how productive I am most days. But in essence, we did that for a long time, much like hundreds of other nonprofits across the nation. And my predecessor, Carrie DeSantis, when she came to Melwood as the president and CEO, and she found out for the first time that you could, in fact, pay people with disabilities subminimum wages, she was horrified and immediately had a conversation with our board, and we voluntarily relinquished our certificate. It did a full kind of economic feasibility study to see how much it would cost to bring everyone that we employ up to first the minimum wage and then to a prevailing wage. So we are proud to pay prevailing wages, living wages to all of our employees You know, it was a little bit of a struggle, but we're lucky. Much like you mentioned about the vehicle donations, we do have a robust philanthropic arm um, and we do a lot of fundraising. So we were able to do it without laying anybody off, without cutting anybody's hours and to retain our workforce.
0: In other words, the compensation from federal contracts then doesn't really cover your costs.
1: It doesn't a lot of the times, particularly since we offer very robust vocational support and coaching services to our employees. We spend about a million dollars a year out of the margin of our contracts and out of the fund development that we do to ensure that each of our employees with disabilities can be successful. And not just at the job that they're doing, but make it into a career, make sure that they can advance, they can be promoted. And that does include educating our supervisors and managers who might know how to clean buildings, but have not worked with people with disabilities in the past
0: we're speaking with larissa counts she is president and ceo of melwood and when industry talks about sub minimum wages how sub minimum are they on average
1: they can huh. go down to pennies on the dollar
0: so dollar two dollars an hour absolutely wow
1: From our perspective, from Melwood's perspective, it's a civil rights issue. It's an equity issue. As a society, we have deemed that a person's time, one hour of your time, is worth at least a minimum amount. And in essence, by allowing the sub-minimum wage payments, you're saying that people with disabilities don't have to meet that same civil rights criteria and that you can pay them less than what you would pay any other human doing that work as an employer.
0: So fair to say you'll be weighing in on the positive side of this proposed rule,
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's been a long time coming. There are many states that have done away with subminimum wages, but there's still quite a few that allow it. We advocated in Maryland, in Annapolis, to get rid of subminimum wage in Maryland, which was phased out, which we're excited about. I'm still working on Virginia um, and Richmond. We're not quite there yet. There are folks working on that at the federal level. There's legislation pending to give grants to states to help nonprofits move away from subminimum wage.
0: And with the fundraising and the other sources of revenue that is available to presumably all of the nonprofits in the Ability One system, then, would you say then that if it should come to pass that everyone must pay minimum wages, then nobody's competitive posture would be affected vis a vis selling to the government and bidding on contracts?
1: Well, so it gets a little bit interesting when you're talking about the Ability One program. As you mentioned, it's a federal procurement program where agencies buy services and goods from 500 plus nonprofits like Melwood across the country. And there's this constant dynamic between the jobs portion of the program, which is creating expanding opportunities for people with disabilities to get jobs. And there is a lot of price pushing from the federal agencies, obviously wanting those services at the lowest price that they can possibly get them. And as we talk about bringing individuals up to prevailing wages, there's that push and pull of making sure that we're employing the most significantly disabled individuals who are not being employed by the private sector right now, but keeping our costs as low as possible, keeping our productivity as high as possible. So it takes creativity, it takes innovation, it takes putting each person in the right job for their skills and their interests. And it means thinking about what does employment mean? What does it mean to have a nine to five job? And are some people with disabilities more cut out for the gig economy? Can we find entrepreneurship opportunities? It means looking at what a job means and what an employee means uh, to get there. But there is a concern by a lot of folks that people will be left behind and they will just be unemployed.
0: Although on the other hand, if say a ability one contractor is making piston rings for airplane engines or that kind of thing, it's hard to believe that even with minimum wages they would not be competitive with, say, a unionized aerospace machinist shop, which has probably right. way above minimum wage wages.
1: Yeah, and since you mentioned unions, that does bring up another topic that's key and controversial to the Ability One program, which is the NLRB the national labor relations board for a long time has said that employees under the ability one program with disabilities are not truly, quote, employees, but they're being rehabilitated or they're being trained. And so there is this push to not allow them to join unions and to unionize, which I'll tell you, Mel was on the progressive side of that as well. And we have unionized sites that include both people with and without disabilities. And we've been very successful with that. So there is a lot of movement going forward.
0: And these are independent unions or are they AFL-CIO affiliates?
1: We have SEIU, we have LIUNA, we have Teamsters, the Drivers Union. We also have an Electricians and Machinists Union. So there's quite a few that we work with based on the type of services we provide.
0: Well, if you can work with the Teamsters and the SEIU, you must be one tough lady.
1: Right? Right. <laughs> We actually have a great relationship with SCIU and with Layuna, and I'm hoping that we can have them come on board as advocates for the Ability One program to really start moving it forward. Because they're good jobs, they're such good jobs, and right now the incumbent, in essence, is guaranteed to stay on a contract for a long term. The statute was created in a way to have stability for jobs with people with disabilities so that their vocational support is not changing every five years because you have to do a recompetition. So they're stable jobs, they're good jobs, and I think the unions are happy with that.
0: Lots to think about. Larissa Counts is the president and CEO of Melwood. Thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thank you so much, Tom. It's an important topic.
0: We'll post this interview along with a link to that proposed rule at federalnewsnetwork.com/slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership Podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral.
3: actual actual uh, afloat commands, uh, the first one was when I was twenty seven years old uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything, and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career um, and Then after I retired after thirty five years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO where I spent my next fourteen years um, i'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life. and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them.
2: Uh, I, We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life, and what quality did you admire about them?
3: I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but...